Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We live in a time of mistrust. And what's that costing us? That's the subject of today's How Do We Fix It? We look at the problem and possible solutions. The value of trust, the cost of mistrust with Jerry Mikulski. There are people who have realized that you can weaponize trust because then you can drive them towards some goal. And we're at this moment where we haven't solved this at all. Post-truth was the 2016 word of the year for the Oxford English Dictionary, I think. We are still in that era and we're trying to figure out how do you clean this thing up? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? What we're talking about today is a very simple concept, design from trust. Examples of systems and organizations that work because they begin with the assumption that most people have good intent. One of my favorite examples of this is one we all interact with all the time, and that's Wikipedia. On every page, you have the opportunity to, to edit it. So basically, anybody can come in there and destroy or vandalize an entry, and yet they get fixed right away. It's not your only stop for information, but I find it surprisingly dependable. We'll also talk about microloans, the employee policy at Netflix, and other successful examples of trust with technology consultant, futurist, and thinker Jerry Mikulski. Jerry joins us via Skype from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? A pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invite. You talk about something you call design from trust. What do you mean by that? It occurred to me over the last decade or so that a lot of the systems we live inside of, our compulsory education system, our electoral system, other kinds of things, are designed for mistrust, which is kind of weird, but they're designed for efficiency and scale and to achieve those things in kind of an industrial mindset, they tend to control us, which often turns into coercion of different sorts. And I then found all around the world a series of movements that were doing kind of the opposite. They were designed with an assumption that the next person coming through the door has good intent. And I call this design from trust, from an assumption that you can trust the next person coming in. Uh, and you design a very different system if you're designing from trust. It isn't just that you're adding internet to something or whatever. Give us a couple of examples. Let's start with, with Wikipedia. First, you think, wow, uh, how can this possibly be an accurate source of information when any idiot can edit something? Uh, and it turns out it actually works better than certainly I'd expected. Um, absolutely true. And I use Wikipedia all the time as an example, partly because 
it's designed from trust in many different ways. So the most obvious of which is that anybody can come in and edit a page on Wikipedia. You can go in, make a change, hit save, and you could vandalize it. You could do just about anything. And the obvious rational response to that is like, these people must be nuts. And it turns out that on average, people are more trustworthy than we think they are. And uh, Wikipedia has discovered this as have many, many other kinds of services over time. So the other ways that Wikipedia is designed from trust include the software is completely open source software. So you can download the Wikimedia platform and you could build your own Wikipedia. Uh, all the conversations about what to do about and with and on Wikipedia are open. So you can go into the talk page and say, hey, why doesn't this page show whatever uh, and make a comment and be part of the conversation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of this endless, understandable example of design from trust. It kind of latches on to a part of human nature that's often overlooked. We know there's going to be vandals out there or partisans who want to make their candidate look good or another candidate look bad and put in things that aren't true. But there's another group of people who really enjoy policing it. You know, so often when they've done studies of how quickly a vandalized page gets restored, it's, you know, usually a matter of minutes. So what is that psychological trait that they're relying on? It's interesting because I think the side of it you're describing is, let's call it altruism or uh, being helpful, helpfulness, something like that. And there's, there's clearly that out there and a lot of people who'd like to be helpful. But in a strange sense, the Wikipedia uses the opposite of that to create the moment, which is vulnerability or risk. And a lot of systems that are designed from trust involve some form of risk or another. And it's that little moment where your gut tightens and your sphincter tightens and you're like, wait, 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 what? Um, that moment is the opening for people to be helpful and to step in and pick up on maintaining something they have in common or some asset that they're building together. That, that's and, interesting because we so often think of risk in, in the negative. Absolutely. We, we think of risk as something to engineer out of everything. And so we try to replace moments of vulnerability with technology, with whatever. Um, and in, in doing so, we're usually eliminating moments where humans can come in and connect with each other I was a, an employee at a large media company for a couple of decades, even more, and was always struck by just how rigid all the employment practices were, uh, the number of days off you were allowed, the health days off. And you cite the example of Netflix, which has a very different kind of policy. How does that work? Well, Netflix decided that all these manuals basically are just examples of how we don't trust people. And when you when you create bureaucracies and you then try to enforce bureaucracies, there's kind of the practical overhead of maintaining that system, which is a pain in the butt. But then there's this loss of willingness and capacity of people to jump in and feel like they're being trusted. So there's this loss of willingness to participate. You're, you're sort of now driven to go do things. What is the Netflix policy on days off and vacation time? So Netflix isn't counting days off and vacation time. Their policy is do what's in the best interest of the company, by which they mean figure out how to balance what needs to get done with your need for time off or sick time or whatever. I was talking about this actually over the weekend with two uh, people I know who both work for major consulting companies, and they were talking about some of the research on these open-ended vacation policies, for example. And they both said that from what they've seen, people sometimes take less vacation. <laughs> people are actually pretty conservative. Have you found that? 
I think this is just a failure to communicate or a failure to balance work and life or a series of other things. I think this can be solved conversationally rather than by mandating. One great example of an organization that is built on trust that's had a remarkable social impact on the lives of many people is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? Yep. And as you started that that sentence, I was like, I bet you're going to say AA because AA is built around social reinforcement of small anonymous circles uh, everywhere in the world. And they're actually not anonymous. They're pseudonymous, meaning that there's kind of no last names. But when you show up for five meetings and then six meetings and then seven meetings and you get a sponsor and that connection is made, you're not anonymous in that social circle. You're participating in a community that is helping you recover and that should you begin to have thoughts of straying, will help you come back. And it's really easy to replicate at a very local level with a minimum of infrastructure. You need a place to meet. And maybe somebody can bring coffee and donuts if you're lucky. But other than that, it does not take a lot of structure. The structure is actually in the practice of it. Talk about microloans and how they work. They're different in many cases from, from normal bank loans. And often microloans uh, rely on a surprising amount of trust. Microloans are, um, in some sense, technically speaking, loans to people who don't qualify for normal loans. They have no collateral. There's nothing they can leave behind in case their loan goes belly up. And so these people are often known as the unbanked or maybe the unbankable. And the original microloans were given to groups of women. And the reliance was really on mutual social reinforcement uh, and the fact that the women got to continue using the money if each of them repaid so they would help each other repay. Again, there was this vulnerability. We don't have an asset to sell if you don't repay, but the amounts were really quite low. Now, what happens is microfinance grows up, the loans go to individual, and things get really complicated later on. So I think you have to you have to look at the social dynamics over time in any of these fields and, and see how they change as well. You know, in a lot of traditional areas that work on trust, the communities are small and people know each other. But what I find fascinating is how we're seeing examples of trust-based systems that are really global among people who don't know each other. great example is Airbnb, where, you know, guests are rated, hosts are rated, and you feel pretty comfortable checking into that Airbnb house, even though you've never met the owner. Absolutely. The first time I traveled to Tallinn, Estonia, I stayed with a fellow who was an Airbnb host. But before starting on Airbnb, he had been on Couchsurfing.com, which is kind of the original thing like this. And on Couchsurfing, no money changed hands at that time. So he had hosted over 200 people on Couchsurfing, which means he had made his, you know, his extra room available. Uh, he cooks a mean breakfast. And he had invited people into his house and had great stories to tell from that. So before these things came about, it would have been hard for us to imagine this happening, partly because our society has become so closed and suspicious. We weren't always that way, but, but we really have become that way. And I think, I think one of the insights for me of just pursuing this whole thing on design from trust, how we've normalized this mistrust. There's a recent Pew Research poll, for example, that found a majority of Americans believe that most people just look out for themselves and that most people would take advantage of you if they got the chance. So part of the problem is us, isn't it? And, and the way that we view uh, trust. Exactly. And, and there's, we can peel this uh, apart in many different layers. 
the one of the outermost layers is this whole idea that in capitalism, homo economicus, which is the sort of self-interested individual, is exactly what society needs. And that if each of us acts in our own personal self-interest and maximizes our utility in these little isoquants that classical neoclassical economists talk in, that everything works out because there's this mysterious invisible hand that sorts it all out. And it turns out that pretty much most of that logic is bogus, that first of all, humans as behavioral economics tells us we're irrational and altruistic all the time in very strange ways, but also um, we need to participate in these moments of risk and interconnection in order to create this thing we call society. We're not just homo economicus. We're human beings with full lives. There are people who have realized that you can weaponize trust because then you can drive them towards some political goal. And we're seeing that in the rise of the, of the rightists around the world, from Duterte to Bolsonaro to Trump in the U.S. And so I think that what's really interesting to me is that trust is being undermined. And yet I happen to believe that trust is the only way out of this fix. And, and we're at this moment where we haven't solved this at all. Post-truth was the 2016 word of the year for the Oxford English Dictionary, I think. We are still in that era, and we're trying to figure out how do you clean this thing up. It's not just about post-truth. It's also that we have a very unforgiving public square. Jerry, when you and I were talking earlier, you mentioned that we live in a vigilante time. What do you mean by that? Well, when something happens, whether it's a corporate malfeasance or something in the public sphere or wherever, uh, the response more often than not these days is off with their head. A healthy culture would actually try to correct the error and mainstream the person again. We don't have that. And, and as a result, the problem is it's a real chilling effect on anybody who might pop their head up and say, well, you know, golly, I did this thing that I'm not really proud of, but maybe we should talk about it. Well, you're not going to do that when the response to any kind of error is beheading. You know, you talked about risk and vulnerability. One of the things that I've learned studying big man-made disasters is they often are encouraged by a culture that doesn't allow anybody to admit they made a mistake. And what they call a real safety culture in an organization means not quite celebrating your mistakes, but, but being willing to call attention to them. But how do we help people admit those vulnerabilities or the mistakes without hitting that, that internet buzzsaw or that culture of blame. We're seeing what you just described play out perfectly in the Boeing 737 MAX mess that we have. Just remind our listeners what happened, because there were a couple of awful fatal crashes earlier this year. So uh, the Boeing 737 is an old, old airplane. And in order to minimize the cost to airlines, Boeing kept stretching it and, and adding bigger engines and doing different things to the 737 because if it's still roughly the same plane, you don't need a whole new program. Uh, the last time they did that, they put really big engines on it, which, which meant they had to move the engines around to an awkward place that made the airplane a little less stable. So they wrote some software to try to stabilize the plane. And the role of the software was to pitch the nose down if the jets started pushing the nose up too much. And then they kind of lost track of what happened. And there's 15 other stupid things that Boeing did in the middle. It's not, this isn't just like one little thing that happened. But for example, safety uh, sensors were an added feature that a lot of airlines didn't buy that would have told them that there was a problem. That, like, that's crazy. But, but bean counters basically won uh, a series of battles at Boeing 
that ended up creating a highly unstable situation where two airliners, a couple months apart, basically plunged into the ocean and killing everybody on board because the pilots were trying to fight the joystick, which was busy shoving the nose of the airplane down automatically. You know, it's one of those amazing cases where something that's supposed to be a safety system wound up making those crashes happen against the efforts of the pilots. But as somebody who covers disasters, I have to say that was a very concise explanation of that whole Boeing mess. It brings us to this question of mistrust and the costs of mistrust, the things that can go wrong. And, and this is a big focus of yours. You say that mistrust makes things cost more. How does that work? Well, it's uh, one way to think about it is kind of easy. Think about all the costs of surveilling. Think of all the kinds of things you would have to do to protect a piece of software, for example. And then compare all of that to the costs of maintaining open source software, not protecting the software anymore, not worrying that anybody's downloading it. In fact, in fact, wanting everybody to download it so that they can improve it, so that they learn how to use it and they become trained on their own. So you can see that the costs of protection are much, much higher than the costs of working from trust. So for me, open source software, for example, is designed from trust. So we've reached the midpoint of our show, Jim, where I usually say, it's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we should also make another appeal to our listeners uh, that if you like what you're hearing and you think it's a good idea to have a show that's essentially solutions journalism driven uh, to chip in some help at uh, patreon.com. That's our fundraising site. You go to patreon.com and search, how do we fix it? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You say that mistrust destroys genius. I love that phrase. Tell us what that means. Simplest example here is if you're curious about math during English class, you're a troublemaker. Like you're supposed to be focused on English, right? But, but you know, everything's integrated and you could study a, a cup of coffee and learn just about anything from it. You could learn chemistry from it, geometry from it, uh, history from it, physics from it. So the structures we've put around school that's designed for mistrust that separates us into one hour sessions on one topic at a time that separates the disciplines from each other, all of that basically eliminates the genius that is already in the room. We do the same thing with jobs and job postings and job titles and job categories, where if you're in, you know, second level analyst someplace, you, it is not your job to go talk to somebody in the other department. You have to go through channels. 
the trade-off for getting everybody to act alike and behave within a system that is rigorously designed to turn everybody out kind of equally, like our compulsory education system, is that it cuts off a lot of the opportunity of the people finding their way to the thing that they're passionate about and going and just doing it. Is there an example of this that's particularly striking in the way that school classes are structured with, for instance, a 45-minute period with a bell ringing at the, at the end of it? How does that interfere with, with, with genius or with creative thinking? For kids' entire school careers, we're moving them from room to room like pachinko balls. But then later we're going to ask them to have grit and stick to and, you know, perseverance and really stick to something. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, you have to transit between classes, then you have to take role, then you hand out the papers from last week. And by the time you're teaching, you, you're down to 20, 25 minutes or something, right? And, and somehow you have to encapsulate learning in that very clumsy, silly method. So there's a lot of experimental schools uh, that are trying open classroom, project-based learning, a whole series of things. Uh, but there's this thing called the hidden curriculum of school, which is that that bell actually is a lesson in and of itself. It's basically telling the kids um, you are to learn how to be a cog in the big machine, that your flow on anything you're doing right now matters less than the fact that you have to clear that seat for the next warm butt that's going to occupy that seat. What is the alternative to that? So um, there's this thing called unschooling, which sounds completely frightening. And it basically assumes that children are curious and that children are trying to find their way to like, what is my role in the world? What am I good at? What am I, what am I going to love? What should I be doing with my time? And, and assumes that kids are kind of on that mission. And if you meet a five-year-old, they're kind of on that mission already, you know, before we put them in school. So the problem is we've sequestered all the kids and put them in these big institutions that now more resemble penitentiaries than actual educational places, like places where you could learn. So that's the situation we're in. And we've forgotten that we used to have one-room schoolhouses sprinkled all around the country, and we were a very literate country. When de Tocqueville comes across the U.S., he's remarking how literate people in the backwoods of Kentucky are. They've got like some pamphlets and books on their shelves. They know how to read. And, and we lost that. We basically industrialized it, lost the genius, lost the march, and created a series of institutions that we can't seem to fix at this point. For, um, for someone who's listening and is a little skeptical about your overall argument, make the case for, for greater trust in our society and why it's so important for, for our democracy and, and for all of us going forward. So I actually think that trust is the way forward through all of these things. We have to figure out how to talk to each other across these political divides. We have to figure out how to, how to talk about facts again, what a fact is. We've, we've become very polarized and we've ended up talking into these communities of choice that we kind of face inward into. And the story about the other with a capital O is kind of scarier and scarier over time. And I think the bravest and most useful thing we can do is go make friends with the other again. Um, just just try to understand one another and what our reasoning systems are in some sense. And I think that'll that'll be very helpful. You know, I love what you say about exposing ourselves to the other, because I think a lot of mistrust in our society comes from this bubblefication of our of our social uh, and ideological circles. So I'm going to challenge you on something that isn't necessarily my opinion, but I could imagine a Second Amendment advocate saying, 
The Second Amendment and private gun ownership is exactly a trust-based system where we trust people to use their weapons responsibly and they can make a contribution to making society safer. How would you respond to that argument? Gun ownership and gun control is a really thorny issue in the middle here, partly because there's, there seems to be very little understanding by gun owners and gun carriers in public of the chilling effect their guns in public actually have on everybody else around them. That when I see people carrying a rifle out in public someplace, uh, this does not make my world any calmer or any better. And the weaponization of our environment is one of our problems with the ability to step forward and have trustworthy discourse, even the willingness of some people to show up and try having discourse. So I, I, I thank you for bringing up the gun control issue because I think it's one of the thorniest of all in thinking about trust. And if I had my druthers, I'd have most of the weapons gone. Um, and I'm unclear how you would enforce that because you don't want like raids where you take away everybody's weapons, but you also don't want a society where everybody's armed to the teeth. That doesn't work. It's complicated. Yeah. It's, Absolutely that's, complicated. That's, that's why I brought it up. I'm, I, and I don't really have a dog in this fight, but it's, but you really bump up against some very deep-seated views of the world on both sides. Absolutely. Jerry Mikulski, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Um, really appreciate it. I love the questions and, of course, love the topics. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. Richard, as so often happens, we've done a show that intersects in interesting ways with so many other episodes that we've done in the past, including going right back to the beginning of How Do We Fix It with Philip K. Howard, who argues that too many of our systems are too rigid, they don't have trust in people, and they, they bind up bureaucracies, agencies, uh, businesses, in all kinds of nitpicky rules where no one's trusted enough to make decisions on their own. And the examples he gives is that the average length of laws uh, right now is way longer than it used to be. That uh, once upon a time, 50, 100 years ago, a law was written with maybe two or three pages and general guidelines. And now it's like every single possibility is, is laid out and you have some legislation that runs 12, 1300 pages, which is absurd. But it's a form of micromanagement. We see it all around us. So if we're so intent on shaming people, whoever make a mistake, then it's only natural that anybody trying to build that kind of institution is going to want to micromanage everything. You know, you see how we get into this. It's not easy to fix. So what do you think about the argument that, that people might have listening to Jerry Mikulski that he's kind of Pollyanna-ish, that he, that he assumes that, that everybody's good or has good intent and uh, we just need to design things from trust? Well, I actually think there is a little trace of that, especially in the education argument. And I actually know the, the, one of the people who's a big leader of this unschooling movement raised his kids in Vermont, largely letting them run around in the woods instead of going to school. Um, so it's a fascinating movement. But I'm also married to a teacher. And I defy you to find a 13-year-old who isn't somebody like Jerry or somebody, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, who is going to sit down and start studying algebra for fun. 
Um, You know, I mean, there are certain things that are just hard to learn. They took centuries to develop, you know, bodies of knowledge. And sure, young people could pursue a line of inquiry and learn all kinds of wonderful things. But are they going to then step back and say, oh, but for the next step, I need to learn calculus and then spend two years learning calculus? I'm just not sure that's going to happen. But I do think in the way that we frame so many debates from, from immigration to education to the issue of children's play, too much is conceived around the idea of fear and, oh, my goodness, what could happen if, rather than allowing creativity um, and imagination and curiosity. And risk. You know, Jerry said something very smart. You have to allow for some risk. If you try to make a system totally safe, sometimes you actually make it more dangerous. So if we allow kids freedom, once in a while a kid is going to fall. That might happen. But the risk of trying to control everything to try to prevent that actually creates other even bigger problems. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Higgs. And that's our show, produced by Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. DaviesContent.com is our website. Uh, it's the Welsh spelling of Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S, content. And we make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out what we may be able to do for you. That's the end of the commercial, and that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.